Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Well, that last episode kind of blew up, Jonathan. It kind of did. I was just going to say, you know, so what have we been doing the last few days? This, um, You tweeted out a, a sample of the clips of Barack Ravid's conversation with Donald Trump that was exclusively on Unholy last week. And I think it was thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets. And that prompted news coverage kind of everywhere. I mean, CNN and the Washington Post and Vanity Fair and the New York Times, everybody, The Guardian, everybody covered it, um, all based on what we heard uh, out of the mouth of the former president. Yes, it was uh, it, it was quite a week. It's an interesting, I think, it's an interesting thing that um, Barack had two big stories, right? One was the uh, F him about Netanyahu and the other was uh, really the outrageous things he said about uh, American Jews. And in Israel, it was interesting to note that the first made the huge headlines here. It shattered the illusion, you know, that Netanyahu and Donald Trump are two peas in a pod. And the second one, the latter, about American Jews made much less headlines. And I think we, we can talk a little bit about that gap. I don't think that Israelis don't care about uh, American Jews or what he said about them. But it was like, okay, first of all, we kind of felt like uh, he's not in the political arena anymore. Netanyahu feels like he still is. Uh, so when he comes back, we'll, we're going to deal with all of that stuff. So it kind of made, there was, there was a discrepancy between the, the head, both headlines, I have to say. I think it's so interesting that because it may be the very reverse dynamic at play outside Israel, especially America where it may be that news editors in America think, well, Netanyahu's the former prime minister, so it's not that big a story anymore. But Donald Trump is very much the nominee designate for the Republican Party for 2024. He's not just the last president, he may be the next one. And so anything he says is still news. I happen to think Donald Trump's one of those people who kind of even if that wasn't true, he's just news because he's so incendiary. But there is still a kind of currency to what he says. So, uh, you know, it, it's one of those classic illustrations of the thing that you and I have been talking about on this podcast throughout the year, which is just how things look inside Israel and outside and how they are yeah, different. Because inside Israel, it was all about the Israel bit, which is Netanyahu. And outside Israel, it was about mm -hmm. the Jewish bit and his comments about Jews. Yeah, I mean, it's even more than that. I mean, as you said, our, our founding idea was to bridge the divide, or at least, let's be honest, talk about the divide, right, between a diaspora Jew, you are that representative, an Israeli Jew, I'm supposed to represent them, I can't re even represent myself, but you know what I mean. Uh, and the, the concept is, you know, let's talk where we agree and where we disagree, and what binds us and what divides us. And Donald Trump is that sort of embodiment, the physical embodiment of the divide. It's, it's amazing when you think about it for a moment. When you look at an estimated 77% of Jewish voters in the U.S. voted for Joe Biden. When you look at the polls in Israel, right, there were just, Israelis were asked before the elections, do you support Biden or do you support Trump? The, the polls were the, almost the exact mirror image, something like 68%, depending on the polling, right, but 68% to 77% said they support Trump. And this is incredible, especially in light of what we've heard and what he says about Jews. Now, you know, I seem to think that it's not because Israelis ignore who he is or don't know what he's saying, but that they're urgent, right? It's a, the, the constant urgent versus the important. It's important to him what he's saying about Jews and they don't agree with it. 
but it's urgent for them to have a president that stands by Israel and stands for Israel's security. And he, a lot of Israelis saw him as this person, where is it the Iran deal? Now it's very, very, it's a very different story the way Israelis look at it. But then, of course, the, the, the uh, issue with the Palestinians and the Abraham Accords. You know, there's a quote, Jonathan, that kind of runs through my head and it, it connects to last week. I, I remember once an Israeli official said to me, in a conversation between us, he said, when Trump was president, we felt like we were sitting in first-class seats on a plane. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we knew that there's a possibility that the pilot can land the plane, but we had all the perks of a first-class you know, seat. So that is a little bit, uh, that was a long-winded way of saying that that is how Israel saw Trump while he was president. And now I like that, and I think that distinction between urgent and important is so interesting. It's as if um a president who is uh, humane and enlightened in his attitude to Jews is a luxury that Israelis can't necessarily afford that the important point is that he's in Israel's corner and the rest is is, is extra and uh, and and luxurious and you know some of the commentary that's come out since since our podcast last week has made this point that some of the most pro-israel presidents um, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, did have anti-Jewish remarks on the record um, in their back catalogue. You know, even and Nixon, that, I think, very similar to what Trump said. I mean, the, well, this was our friend David Remnick of the New Yorker mm-hmm. brought this out that the, mm-hmm. and it's funny because it, it, it was one of those things that I knew that the Trump tape recordings and the sound of Trump talking on Barack Ravid's tape recorder struck a familiar echo and I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was but David Remnick did and he remembered that there were hours and hours and hours of tapes from the Nixon White House that became public and on tape uh, among in among all the expletives that were later deleted was Richard Nixon saying to his chief of staff the Jews are all over the government and what's more most Jews are disloyal and then there's Donald Trump saying that Jews or Israel used to have absolute power over Congress, and then also saying uh, that they don't like and don't care about Israel, um, uh, and that they somehow are disloyal. So the echo is really, really direct. I have found, I mean, that difference that you've been talking about between how Israelis react and how Jews react is just fascinating. It's one of our themes on the podcast, you know, that Israelis are from Mars and American or diaspora Jews are from Venus. And that that sort of raw such test of how you look at Donald Trump so brings that out where, as you say, essentially it's three to one uh, American Jews opposed Trump and three to one Israeli Jews or more supported him. It's an absolute mirror image. The one exception, which is interesting just because Donald Trump himself mentioned it, are Orthodox Jews in America who were in Trump's corner and are not signed up for the very liberal, and we know most American Jews are not just liberal, they are kind of ultra-liberal on social questions. The group who are not signed up for that are religious and orthodox Jews, and they are a potential in our ongoing conversation, you and me, and Israel and the diaspora, they are a really interesting potential bridge because they're a little bit Israeli in their attitudes um, and so they are the little bit of the Venn diagram where the two circles overlap, perhaps. So that's interesting. The conversation as well about whether or not the diaspora one, I mean, the American one, about whether these remarks prove Donald Trump's an anti-Semite or not. I have found that very interesting. Um, but, you know, it's an, it's an argument that's raged before. But it's happened now with a kind of new focus 
with these comments and it's you know it's it's amazing really that the comments made and heard on this podcast have become the sort of central text of this big argument is or is not Donald Trump an anti-Semite? Look, again, the argument, as you said, uh, was reignited. Um, and I, I was focusing, I think there's a lot to say about that, by the way. I think that is the danger, right, is the right question to ask here, is he an anti-Semite or is the danger of what he's saying is enabling and true anti-Semites to come forth, right? I mean, the problem, I think, many, even many Israelis, after saying everything I said, had was the fact that it seemed like the way he speaks and his anti-establishment uh, um, motto brings forth or allows for groups to come that shouldn't have seen the light of day and in normal you know, political climate would never see the light of day. And he wasn't at all quick enough to sort of throw uh, uh, these, these uh, extreme groups off his back. That was, I think, very concerning. It was concerning for, for Israelis um, as well. You know, Jonathan, I, I kind of thought about... What he talks about, the evangelicals, right? They love Israel more than the Jews do. And it made me think about, which is, of course, a terrible thing to say, but it made me think about, you know, what happened to us? What happened to, to Jews and what happened to the divide? Because if we're honest with ourselves for a second, is it an, isn't it true that a right-wing religious settler in Israel feels more at home and more comfortable in a conversation with an evangelical Christian. Isn't it true if we admit to ourselves that a liberal from Tel Aviv will feel more comfortable in a conversation with a non-Jew liberal from New York and not with his or with an Orthodox Jew from Brooklyn? So that po the political divide became more important than religious, than ethnicity, than you know, that the bond that is supposed to bind us as Jews around the world. And is that reversible at all? And Trump, like any good populist, has a little bit of truth, and the rest is a lot of hot air, maybe. But he speaks about that divide again in an outrageous way. And what are we supposed to do again, as you know, the people who host this podcast and brought it to life, to 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 somehow amend that? I don't have I don't have answers. I mean, my God, we're Jews. We just have questions. It's just a question I have. I think it's such an interesting question, and the idea that a Jew from Park Slope has, uh, or a Jew in Tel Aviv, a liberal Jew has more in common with a non-Jewish liberal in on in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Uh, in other words, you know. Martians have more in common with other Martians and Venusians have more in common with other Venusians, you know, rather yeah. than them being Jewish. And I think that is a real issue. And if that divide existed, by the way, I don't think this was Donald Trump's intention at all. But if that ex divide exists... Or his invention, by the way. Well, right? what if I was going to say is he absolutely he puts a wedge he puts a wedge right in that divide. Mm -hmm. These remarks of his tool. He is the know, wedge. He is. I mean, he drives such a wedge between Israeli Jews and American Jews, between liberals, uh, liberal Jews, and 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 uh, you know conservative Jews. They divide, you know, uh, perfectly along the lines of support or opposition to his remarks. He is such a polarizing figure, but that's something that I think is you. The point you make is very strong. I think it really has caused a rift or revealed a rift between Israelis and Americans to the point where their Jewishness as a bond is perhaps weaker than their political identity. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that people have noticed about Trump is that he has made your partisan affiliation 
almost the most important fact about you, and we've mentioned before this extraordinary thing that the best predictor of whether you've had the vaccine or not in America is whether you voted for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, that, yeah. that your partisan political affiliation becomes your key tribe. I just want to, while we wind up our conversation, just understand I'm from Mars and you're from Venus or you're from Mars and I'm from Venus. Just uh, make sure in this whole, Israel this whole metaphor. Is, in, in this metaphor, Israelis are from Mars. Um, okay, because cool. Because they are cool. Cool. bellicose and belligerent, you need. And um, Venusians and green, like me are and in green. diaspora. With, yeah, okay. and we well, and we if uh, what what do Venusians even look like? I, I have no idea. But anyway, we're meant to be softer and cuddlier and touchier and feelier. <laughs> uh, that's the cliche and the metaphor. Anyway, it's it was a thrill for us because the word from unholy went out into the wider world. Uh, and became the subject of this really engaged and international conversation. So here we are again talking about Donald Trump. I make the case that it's highly defensible, given he may well not just be the former president, but he may be the next president of the United States. But he is, in a sense, the gift that keeps on giving, which brings us very nicely to this season of gift giving. And that is well, I'm sort of almost hesitating to say the word because um, for a long time, even in my own family, it was a bit of a taboo. But um, a season is upon us that uh, at least one member of my family used to refer to as Kratzmach rather than actually say <laughs> the word Christmas. But it is Christmas, Yoni. It is um, here. What do we feel about that? I'm Israeli. I don't care. You just don't care. I mean, I want to find out about this because... Before I plunge in with my 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 evolving journey in attitudes to the festival that is looming and more or less upon us, I want yes. to know how much of a non-event Christmas is in Israel. And I ask that because we know there are Christians who live in Israel, obviously in territory Israel occupies, namely Bethlehem. It's very significant. Jesus' birthplace, Nazareth, is part of Israel. Is Christmas a total non-event or just mainly a non-event in Israel? Well, you know, first of all, uh, Christmas is a mainly non-event in Israel, if I can be uh, honest. I mean, let's say this. You said there are Christians in Israel. There are about 200,000 uh, Christians in uh, in Israel. Most of them are Arab Christians. So in the cities that inside the country that pride themselves on coexistence, uh, right, the Haifa more than anything, and probably Jerusalem in the Christian quarter. Um, you will see, you will see some celebrations, right? But it becomes tourist attraction. But sure, you have to say we are all at work. There is no vacation, right? I mean, this is not at all the way it looks uh, in anywhere else uh, in the world. As and you mentioned Bethlehem, of course, which is the city itself is under Palestinian authority, but Israel rules uh, most of the territories. Uh, if I want to see a midnight mass in uh, Bethlehem, I can't because it's Area A. But most of the people who are devout uh, pilgrims or want to come from Ramallah, from Gaza, from anywhere else for the rest of the world, that's not going to happen this year. Uh, they they can do that. They need an uh, authorization, but they can that they can go. Uh, to, to, as a short answer to your question, Jonathan, it is more sort of folklore, is more a tourist attraction. It doesn't happen here. In a huge way, for sure, and, and, and it is and, the land of Jesus Christ, so that's kind I of know. ironic when you the think holy, about it. So Christmas is a non-event in the Holy Land, so-called. The the bit that I wondered about was actually, you know, Tel Aviv, especially hugely international city. You know, we know it's the land of high tech and startups and everything. People who will be dealing with Europe and particularly America 
do those people not feel like work is beginning to wind down because, you know, they won't be able to get hold of people in New York until the new year, January? Or does it, I mean, or Israelis are just turning off work as if nothing's going on in the rest of the world? Everyone's going to work. Maybe they have less conversations with with the, the Western world, but everyone everyone is at uh, everyone is at work for sure. I mean, it's a funny thing, you know. We always talk about Jewish holidays, where here it's the biggest thing, and everyone is celebrating, and over there it's the minority right that is celebrating, yes. and here it's just a mirror image of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. And when you said two hundred thousand Christians, and I was thinking there's roughly two hundred and fifty thousand Jews in Britain, it's like we, you know, there's a little <laughs> mirror image there. Okay, so right? about. Um, attitudes that I would have as the minority member of a minority community community in this country at Christmas time. And I said I've evolved. It is quite true that, you know, if you take the long sweep of my family, my beloved great aunt, um, who was the most um, religious and devout member of my family, Auntie Yiddi, she was known as Yehudit, but Yiddis in Yiddish, she would literally not say the word. And it was Kratzmach only, um, which is a sort of bowdlerized, Yiddishized version. Um, I think my mother adopted that as well. Certainly there was a, a thing about writing Xmas, so you didn't actually mention the name of you-know-who uh, or didn't write it down. I still sort of do that. I tell myself it's because it's briefer. <laughs> um, but I think it is. But, you know, it's a shorthand. Um, and for a long time, I mean, Christmas was truly a non-event. I mean, in like consciously a non-event, like you ignored up. it consciously. Consciously non-event, but is it because? But is it because generally, like the family didn't want to? Because if you celebrate or or somehow participate, or the Hanukkah bush or whatever way some families used to have to to sort of participate, then it's the danger of assimilation. Or is it just because you know we're celebrate? We can't celebrate the or or participate in any way the celebration of the birth of the man that in his name terrible things were done to Jews. I mean, where do you put that? Kind of very good. So definitely both. Okay. Um, and I like the, your use of the word danger because there was fear around it that if you started a little bit of tinsel, you know, some holly appeared, who knows where it would it's end. It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope and it would lead eventually <laughs> to, yes, assimilation. And how interesting actually that the Hanukkah story, which comes so close to um, Christmas, is all about the it's not a genocidal threat, as Dara Horn told us a couple of weeks ago. It's not about that. That's Purim. The Hanukkah threat is of assimilation and cultural disappearance. And that was a yeah. seen as a great fear that who knows where this would start. So, yes, there's a bit of the, the religious, the theological element. And I know there will be unholy listeners who will nod at this next bit, which is if you didn't go to a Jewish school and there was the carol singing or hymns, you know, the Jewish kids might sing along to a bit, but then mute themselves. They would put themselves on mute when the word Jesus or even more Christ came up. They would skip that word, but sing the rest of the carol. And there are carols, there's a lot of banging tunes there. So kids, Jewish kids would like to sing them, but they would... So I have to ask if you ever did that. I, I completely did do that. And you would sing along, you know, belting out the little Christmas carols, Silent Night, Holy Night, whatever. But when it came to Jesus or, you know, I'm even now hesitating, or the word Christ, you know, <laughs> mute button, you felt as if somehow your well, rabbi, you know, God wouldn't be too angry with you because you hadn't sung the Christian bit. That is a really, that is seared into my memory, actually. <laughs> That's amazing. But and the other amazing thing is that you didn't go to Jewish school. Did That's, I I hear I heard you correctly. You heard that right. I never once went to Jewish which, school. Which I thought you knew that already. Which no, I'm just first of all, I'm surprised that I didn't know this. But secondly, it means I have more years 
of Jewish school and diaspora than you? Do you do you understand well, the, the par the huge paradox here? That is a that is a head explode moment because of course you did go to a Jewish school in Chicago, I think, right? And I and never... Shea met Jewish day school, so I never had to sing the Christmas carols. Right, so you don't have this experience. Although I did find myself, my mother says that I did find myself saying that Jews are the people who don't have Christmas when I was in first grade. Oh, so I kind of knew, knew where that. the difference is. And you still but, felt, well, and did you feel sad about it even then as a little girl? I think so. I think I said it out of, uh, you know, kind of envy and, and yes, yeah. I, I mean, that this is, this is the family story. Yeah. But, no, okay. That, so you, I can I can feel feel like a better Jew for a few minutes because yeah, I did no, you, go to Jewish school in diaspora. You can definitely and you, didn't. you can definitely out Jew <laughs> me on that. And you know that's um, I'm just now thinking of this is not a Christmas the 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 uh, guys and dolls which was on TV in the lead up to Christmas here. And so sue me, sue me. You know you can out Jew me. <laughs> Um, that, this is where exactly. we're going. But the, which reminds me, of course, wow. I mean, that is such a Jewish show. And there are, of course, Jewish fingerprints all over the songs that are sung at Christmas, just not the carols. You know, so if at my school we'd yep. sung, you know, at, we'd channeled Bing Crosby and sung I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas by Irving Berlin, that would have been fine. I think I would have known instinctively that that was that kosher, but I couldn't do that. So, no, that was the <laughs> thing. I, we, we, I, you know, I missed out. Now, I would, you know, and yet I didn't feel the kind of envy you're describing, which is interesting. There was no tree, no tinsel in uh, the Friedland family household, certainly no turkey. There was no acknowledgement, really, that Christmas was happening. And Christmas Day, I, you know, it's funny now to say, but my parents used to use it kind of logistically. You know, they my parents had a little holiday flat in Bournemouth by the seaside, which tries to think of itself as a kind of British my Anglo-Jewish Miami. It really isn't. But, it, you know, there isn't the weather. <laughs> Um, but they would go there, and Christmas Day would often be the day we would drive down, you know, so that and lunchtime we would drive down when the rest of the country was having Christmas lunch. No, we were in our own little sealed bubble on wheels, Christmas free zone, driving to the coast. So they planned it. They were smart parents. They planned it that way. I think so. Though you know, maybe there was something deliberate there, and for years and years and years, that was that was the way I did it too. Wow. And, you know, I'm thinking when you were, were talking about this, somehow I have the image of uh, the play that we both saw and enjoyed, uh, Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt and the Jewish family in Vienna in the turn of the 20th century and the opening scene, right, where you, the, there's some sort of intermarriage there between Christians and Jews and the opening scene is this huge Christmas tree in their house and the little boy puts or tries to put the Star of David on top of the of the tree, right? When we're talking about those dangers of assimilation and what, you know, the image is, the imagery is very stark there. Oh, it's so well, I mean, that really was a brilliant opening, actually. And it leapt out at me at the same time, because I thought, in a way, we know as the audience, don't we, wh why that's poignant is, of course, where it's going to end for that uh, yeah. family. And, you know, I felt that was kind of Tom Stoppard channeling, in a way, the spirit <laughs> of my great aunt, Auntie Yiddy, you know, an unlikely combination, Tom Stoppard <laughs> and, and her. But in a way it was because she, her view was that with great sort of foreboding, that if you go down this road of, um, you know, Christmas, then before Kratzmach, before you know it, it's assimilation and that never ends well. And in a way, Tom Stoppard, obviously from a completely different angle, but the play, that has poignance, doesn't it, in the opening of that play, because we know what they don't know, that this this hope they have that somehow the two can be brought together, Christmas and 
and Hanukkah, whatever, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. So, so what happened to the Friedland family? What changed? Well, over time, we did sort of, you know, my, not my parents. I don't think they really did change at all on this subject. But the, but you know, bring bring up my own children who did go to Jewish schools who knew all the Hanukkah songs, and just little by little, I found that you know, when um, in the lead up to Christmas, I would be listening to you know the Sinatra Christmas album. We'd have that playing in the kitchen and a couple of times I have attended a Christmas carol performance because the songs are lovely and it was atmospheric and I didn't feel and this is the key thing I think I didn't feel sort of threatened by it anymore it didn't feel like something like I felt when I was muting out the words you know that it would somehow um, diminish my Jewish identity that it would erode my Jewish identity and it turns out it's not just me I mean I did once write a piece on this and I made a call um, to a kosher butcher who reported that they had this huge run of orders for turkey, kosher turkey, in late December. And what was interesting about that was these were not assimilated Jews. They all, These were Jews who were still Jewish enough to want to eat. Keeping kosher. To, yeah. Exactly, to keep kosher. But nevertheless, they thought, why not? You know, everyone else is having a turkey lunch or dinner. We live in this country and... It doesn't make us any less Jewish. It's not. There's nothing Christian about yeah. it. You know, it's not. It's just a lovely time of year, and why not? And the key bit of and everyone else is. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's exactly the thing. The everyone else is the key bit because you know, when, like when you and I talked about Yom Kippur in Israel, the appeal yeah. is is that you know it's that one time when everyone else is also not working, and that's there's something lovely about that when you know peak the kids cycling on the highway. <laughs> yeah. Well, unless you're working with a nagging Israeli and doing a podcast. So she's going to be calling you on Christmas, dragging you to do a, a Christmas episode. But besides that, everyone else is on vacation. Yes. I mean, you're letting a little bit of daylight in upon magic <laughs> because you're revealing to our listener that we did have some discussion where I very tentatively tried to say, you know, maybe we should have the next two weeks off like everyone else. And you said, well, not here <laughs> in Israel. Everyone's working. These are normal working days. If so, I'm working, you're you know, working, Friedland. Yeah, it was a spirited, exactly. I think it was so more a spirited debate than a discussion. Um, we have to say something <laughs> about Christmas films. Your favorite? Yeah, we absolutely we do. Um, and this, by the way, is all part of that lead up. So I mentioned the Sinatra music um, from the moment our kids were very little. And actually, it was a Christmas we had outside London. We rented a little cottage and snow did fall. It was actually a white Christmas. And we saw for the first time, and it's now become our Christmas minhag, we saw uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol. You know, I love the Muppets anyway, but I think this is the Muppets of the absolute peak of their powers um the muppet christmas carol is just a work of art you know that we have great admiration for the novel but the muppet christmas carol as a film is a sublime treat and a joy and we still do it my kids are now you know 20 and 17 but we still will sit down wow. do sit down and watch a muppet christmas carol so do Kermit you trump's charles dickens is what you say uh well you know he's uh he he takes charles dickens to a whole new level yes um <laughs> What about you, Yoni? Do you have a Christmas movie or are you? I do, I do. such a Christmas freezer? Oh, you do. Die Hard. It's surprising. I don't like action films. Usually, you know, I can't deal with the violence. But this is really the the peak of its genre and it's beautiful and it's a great film. 
Uh, even like 30, what, 33 years later, it's still a perfect, yes. uh, it's perfect film. I know there's this argument, whether it is or not a Christmas film, A, I don't care, I'm Jewish, B, it happens at Christmas, there are Christmas <laughs> songs in the, in the soundtrack, it's a Christmas. They had to ask Justin Trudeau this week, the Prime Minister of Canada, if Die Hard is indeed a Christmas film. I don't know, maybe they ran out of questions, but he said it is, <laughs> so that's enough of an authority for me. It's a good film. Good. I, here's where I, with some embarrassment, admit that I've actually never seen that film. No. And yet I'm aware of the debate, so now I will. That will add that to the pile of Christmas viewing. It is a very <laughs> steep pile already because I've, you know, I'm, I've already told you about Muppet Christmas Carol being compulsory. There are two more Christmas films which have all, also we feel as if we're sort of obliged to see and we love – one is, of course, It's a Wonderful Life, which is a huge tradition, particularly in America, to watch that perfect film. film. Perfect film. Perfect. It is a perfect film. I mean, I just love it and find new depths in it every time. I would argue that it's legitimate talking point on Unholy because I think there's something very Jewish about the exercise that George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, goes through, which is it's a kind of cheshbon nefesh there where yeah. he is accounting it's an accounting of the soul it's sort of maybe it should be a Yom Kippur movie rather than a <laughs> well, Christmas it's very, movie it's rather dark isn't it I mean it's surprising it's very this dark, film yeah. yeah well it's just the person is forced to think what would the world be like my family but the world be yeah. like if I wasn't in it and there's a real uh, focus to that exercise. There is something sort of spiritual about that exercise, and that's what the film's about. Uh, so that is in there. And then much less dark is an, a, a latecomer to the Friedland Christmas um, film club is Elf with Will Ferrell, Ooh. which I came to, as I say, very late, but my kids love, we love. So if we can get all three in, we feel we've done very well. So you got all three. So I'm now I'm like pushing Die Hard a little bit. But I'm only forcing it's you four. to watch the, I mean, the first the first one because there's this joke a few years ago. Bruce Willis was roasted on Comedy Central, and someone said, "You know, he's now filming Die Hard Six: Natural Causes." So, <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to That's see the f- two, three, four. Just see the first. It's fine. I'll forgive you. Just now, um, a, a, talking of traditions, we have our own unholy minchagim and customs yep. to observe, and one of them is that we do give out uh, awards uh, with Kutzpah mm-hmm. and Mensch. Uh, but I think you've got a little addition, which in Chutzpahdik style, you want to slip in there. Exactly, exactly. I just, I thought maybe we could, uh, you know, tis the season, so maybe the Scrooge Awards before the Chutzpah Award. And I have to yeah, give that, that to uh, Eric Clapton. I mean, really, who uh, won a lawsuit against a German widow who... Uh, tried to sell a bootleg of his performance, bootleg CD of his performance for $11 on eBay. He sued her and won $4,000 or something in like legal fees. I just, you know, don't, I think a rule of thumb in life, don't sue your fans. You have much more money. Just don't do it. Unless, yeah. you know, she's Kathy Bates and your James Conn film is misery. <laughs> don't sue your fans. So he gets the screw Don't sue your fans. Yep. And well, if you've got fans, then don't sue them. I think that's a very good recipient for that. So I'm um, going to hand out the Chutzpah Awards. Mm-hmm. And we sort of end where we began a bit with Donald Trump. Uh, alongside Bill O'Reilly of Fox News, um, they were on a TV show and just as a kind of casual aside, mentioned that they'd both been double vaccinated and both had the booster, um, which struck me as kind of Chutzpah, given they sit atop a sort of news media world that is really anti-vax and, in fact, embodied by another Chutzpah Award recipient or contender, 
uh, former Alaska governor, former vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin, who came back into the news this week saying that she would have a vaccine over her dead body. She would not be vaccinated. So adding weight to this um, anti-vax movement, which I actually know could not be a metaphor, in- by the way, if she doesn't get vaccinated, just saying, okay. Uh, oh, I mean, it ju- yes, it could. That's right. I mean, it drives, you know, a meter distraction. These people who, I mean, the, the Trump and O'Reilly thing is awful because, you know, there's this whole world of people who are anti-vax publicly, but quietly, privately go and get the vaccine. And then there's people like Sarah Palin who, you know, are encouraging people to not do something which is so vital for their health. So chutzpah awards are plenty uh, heading Completely. their way. Completely. And now, Mensch, for Christmas, yes. what could be, I think, Jonathan, more perfect than two Jews who host a podcast named Unholy giving the Mensch Award on Christmas to the Pope? I think, you know, we can equally annoy everyone. And then, is that just generally for being a great guy, which I'm, you know, no. I'm a big fan of Pope Francis. <laughs> hey, Very I have a happy. specific reason. What, what's the reason we're giving reason. it to him? He was on uh, Italian television on Tuesday saying men who commit violence against women engage in something satanic, which is not only true, but very important that the Pope himself is vocal about it. Um, and, uh, you know, the Pope, uh, this Pope, Pope Francis, has been uh, quite revolutionary uh, in the Catholic Church uh, when it comes to uh, issues of homosexuality and of abortion, I think more people expect him to be a little more forward-thinking when it comes to women's rights. He said women are never going to be Catholic priests, but still this uh, fact that he spoke up, uh, I think we can give him the Mensch Award for Christmas, don't you think? I mean, it is quite something, isn't it, the idea of us uh, handing out awards to the Pope. Somewhere in a parallel universe, there are two Catholic journalists presenting two Catholics on the news, and they are handing out this week's chutzpah award to us for having the chutzpah to enlist the Pope. And, Your Holiness, if you feel this is a chutzpah too far, do feel free to get in touch yourself. We are at two Jews on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, Your Holiness, remember you can rate us uh, or review us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can do that. And um, and and if you're not the Pope, um, please also do the same. Uh, we are always grateful for those recommendations. And, and I will add Merry Christmas, sir, because... <laughs> You know, I went to Jewish school, so I can say that to the Pope, whereas you might be a little, you'll mute yourself from saying that. Um, Let's say thank yous. Uh, First of all, Jonathan, thank you for being dragged into the Christmas episode, although you are on vacation. And thank you to Lior Friedman as well and Nirad Eshel, all of them supposed to be on vacation. And Rom Atik and Omer Primat are here with me, so they're just doing their day job. But thank you to them as well. And uh, happy holidays, Jonathan. And we shall meet next week. Happy holidays to you, Anit. See you next time. (laughs) 